Hello and welcome to Webinar Extra. I'm Martin Cordner, Head of Research at the College of Optometrists. In January 2021, a national lockdown was reintroduced in England. Now, the whole of the UK is in lockdown and in accordance with each nation's government directives, primary care is open and optometry remains in amber phase. The College hosted a webinar on 14th of January with a panel of representatives from the College, ABDO, AOP, FODO and GOC answering questions from practitioners. Although we aimed to answer the key questions, we did not have time to answer all of the questions posed by the audience. In this episode, the panel reconvenes to cover as many possible of the recurrent themes and answer outstanding questions. We hope you enjoy it. Well, hello and welcome to this podcast presented by the College of Optometrists regarding safe practice during the COVID pandemic. My name is Richard Edwards, and I'm here to act as chair and ask the questions that you've raised to our panel group who've been assembled from across the sector to try and provide information and insight to help us be reassured about how to practice safely at this time. I've been joined today by Dr. Paramdeep Bilku, who's clinical advisor at the college, Harjit Sandhu, who's the managing director of FODO, Marcus Dai, who's the interim director of policy at the GOC, Debbie McGill, Policy Manager at ABDO, and Dr. Peter Hampson, who's the Clinical Director from the AOP. So a broad range of professional bodies and insight to answer the fantastic range of questions that you've submitted to the college that I'm now going to start putting to the panel members. So I'm going to start with, with kind of one of the, the, the most common questions that we've, we've seen. I'm going to direct this to, to the college, which is, under what circumstances would we move from amber to red, and who decides that? Oh, thank you, Richard. So this is a Paramedi Bilku, a clinical advisor at the college. The red phase is initiated when the respective UK governments and health systems, like the NHS, suspend routine primary care. This is not just optometry, but all primary care services. But we're now at a very different level of preparedness than we were in the first lockdown in March. And so going forward, we believe it's now unlikely that any health system would now shut down primary care again, even as the highest alert level five. And that was due to the fact that there was a risk of harm as a result of closing routine care uh, that was not mitigated by secondary care. And so it's really important to emphasise the fact that optometry uh, is, a, is a primary care profession uh, that helps to, enables people to maintain and preserve their sight as a public health function. That's essential. And access to care is a, is a legal exemption uh, in terms of the current lockdown. So, so just to be clear, the, the decision-making from that move to amber to red does not sit with anybody within the, the optic sector. These are decisions that are made out with the optic sector, but which affect the optic sector. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah. So it would be the, the UK governments and the, and the respective nations and their healthcare systems that make that decision about routine primary care. Right, thank you. Okay, next question. Um, I'm going to stay with Paramdeep on this one. Um, so is it acceptable practice to cancel a routine appointment in order to see an urgent case if it arises? I think in terms of the urgent and emergency cases, these should certainly be prioritised, and the AMBA guidance does highlight that. And ideally, this should be through good basically appointment book management. So if sufficient time is reserved and routine is only book where capacity permits, then this should minimise the risk of needing them to cancel any patient or turn away those needing urgent care. And I guess on that, I suppose, would a practitioner and a practice team not have to make those trade-offs pre-pandemic? Yes, I agree with that. So, I mean, prior to the COVID pandemic, that should certainly be happening because there should always be capacity for those instances where urgent care is required. But the pandemic has highlighted the fact that the urgent cases should be prioritised. 
on the fact that we should be reducing contact and therefore reducing transmission of the virus. So it just highlights the fact that this has always been going on, but it should be more so as a result of the pandemic. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Um, I'm going to move on to Hardrick now. Um, you know, a lot of our businesses are designed and built around routine. Therefore, there's always kind of capacity for routine, even if we prioritise urgent and emergency uh, appointments. So this particular one says that we're seeing routine people when maybe we shouldn't be because the businesses are designed for routine. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think the question um, is getting to the, the point in the guidance that talks about where capacity permits you can do routine. I think it's important that that's not really in isolation because COVID guidance also talks about prioritisation and weighing up um, COVID and then COVID risks. So, for example, you might have 85-year-old who is in a higher risk group for COVID-19, who is asymptomatic, has no ocular history or signs of any pathology that you suspect. And in those cases, on an individual triage basis, you might decide, you know, with the patient to delay the care. And in other cases, you know, people are put on a, what we, we say is routine, but we're put on a recall for a specific time period, often for a specific reason. And in some cases, it might be appropriate to call them you know, forwards with all the safety measures in place. So I think, again, you have to read everything in the context of the wider guidance. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I suppose, uh, and just building on that, one of the things that really struck me when we recorded the webinar last week on this was something Daniel from, from the college said about how the, the decision-making framework is, is around the practice and the practitioners making a judgment of what's in the, the best interest of the patient. And I think that slightly different perhaps to the perception that you know we should be limiting ourselves to urgent kind of cases that it is it that best interests is that the phrase we should, that everyone should be focused on when they make their decision about seeing people i think so and i think there's another thing richard i think we have this this terminology of routine site test when you know people are booked in for site tests in the future by fundamentally optometrists at the end of a site test and they're making judgment calls of when that person needs to come back so when people do come back the triage process should help identify when it's in the patient's interest. Okay, uh, interesting question that has cropped up before, which is the vast majority of optical practices are, are reliant on retail sales. Uh, this, you know, the sale of the appliance is, is critical in remaining economically viable. But the retail side of the business, which is separate from the emergency and urgent cases uh, that we're, we're discussing, this particular member suggests that logically there's no reason why the retail side of the business should be treated differently to the retail outlets, which are currently subject to full lockdown. Um, in view of soaring infection rates. What are your thoughts on that, Harjit? I, th I think there is a difference between opticians and general retailers. Um, for example, um, opticians provide medical devices. Um, they're not general retailers. Um, and audiologists too. So it's not just opticians that are in this group. If you look at the exemptions, they are really wider and allow all medical-related health premises to remain open. And there's a wide group of providers in that. I think opticians also operate on an appointment basis at this stage. So there's not general browsing like there would be in retail. And we also have more stringent IPC measures um, and higher grades of PPE than general retail does. So, you know, an optician practice is other things being equal safer than the average retail outlets. And we can see that in the very big difference between IPC measures for healthcare environments versus the general government guidance for COVID secure guidance for retail premises. So there are differences. So it's absolutely right to question, is it safe? Yes, but there are fundamental differences. And each of the countries have weighed that up in who they allow to remain open. Peter? Obviously, the retail side is what allows us to provide the appliances and to correct people's sight. So if we close it completely, we wouldn't be able to fulfil a large part of our core function. So we sort of have to keep it open because of that, if nothing else. I'm going to come back to, uh, to the college. There's a question here around guides. 
is it ethical or professional for the college to promote routine eye tests at a time when it's encouraging the public to break the lockdown, uh, which is the law and not just advisory in brackets, for no good reason if they are asymptomatic, when vaccinations are only a matter of weeks away and emergency eye care is easily accessible if needed? I think firstly, I mean, the public advised by the government that they should continue to attend medical appointments and that is an exemption made in the legislation. I think the lack of access to primary care across all settings, I mean, that has caused significant harm through increased preventable sight loss by stopping routine testing in the first lockdown. And so secondly, a legal exemption to the, the current lockdown in all UK nations is accessing medical appointments such as eye care. So if the patient contacts a practice about routine eye care and they are asymptomatic, then they should be offered to postpone their appointment, particularly if they are high risk of contracting the virus. Okay, so again, we're back to this, this critical point, this root thing about, you know, where capacity permits and it's in the patient's best interests, it's fine, but we keep, it is that, you know, that judgment call about patient's best interest that, that kind of stands out for me in, in, in that particular response. I'm going to bounce back to Harjit now. Um, is it okay for providers and practices to be bombarding people with repeated reminders and advertising, encouraging them to come in now rather than wait a month or two when there will be less pressure on the system? I think just on bombarding anybody with marketing, I don't think it's appreciated in um, normal times and it won't be appreciated now as a general principle. Um, in terms of actual reminders, I think there's a few points to pick up here and I think they need to be separated out a bit. In all cases, it's important that you follow COVID-19 guidance. So making someone aware that they're due an appointment doesn't mean that that should automatically result in a face-to-face -face appointment at the end of it. Um, making sure they're aware might lead to a whole series of steps where it helps you prioritise. And we know this in optometric practice that actually um, a failsafe might be for the recalls to go out because there's no other way of, you know, risk categorised people at the time to make them aware that you're open. Also encourages those people who are borderline or having symptoms to come forward. So there are advantages to making people aware that you're open, but um, it has to be always done in the context of COVID guidance. So there should be failsafes that stop people making unnecessary appointments or where it's not safe to do so. Uh, coming in so there should be yeah. a mechanism yeah, so that allows delay so i guess we, yeah and we're going to talk about triaging in a moment but i guess what you're saying is you know it, the, the, there's a backstop here there's a triage process that yeah. should filter out but there's the yeah and, sorry richard and the other thing is remember that um depending on the advertising nature sometimes there's a lag you know you might have you might have commissioned some advertising two weeks before and yeah. it takes a while to kick in and it pulls yeah. back so the most immediate priority should always be make sure your triage mechanisms respond very quickly to the change in pandemic situation and make sure your advertising and promotion stuff is updated as soon as possible for it to be appropriate for that stage of the pandemic. And there might be a lag there. And you'll often see over the week, two weeks after a change, the wording changes in adverts. I'm going to come back to the, to the college. I've got a question around college guidance here. Rob. Why, why is routine testing not being postponed as we're encouraging people to come out of the house when it's not necessary. Many patients have had little or no change and simply fancy a new pair of specs. Pandy, what are your thoughts on that statement? Okay, certainly the government of all four nations has been really clear that alongside you know, stay-at-home messaging, the public should continue to access to health care, and that includes routine appointments. You know, it's really important that optical practices should balance both the patient's risk of COVID-19 and their eye health when booking appointments. So during these lockdowns, all asymptomatic routine patients, again, like I mentioned before, should, particularly if they're high risk of COVID, offer the choice to defer their appointment. So across the UK, it's a legal exemption for them to leave the home. And so it also depends upon the, the patient's needs. For example, if they're a key worker and they've broken their glass, that's a legitimate reason for them to update their spectacles. 
So it's always on a, on a needs and symptoms-led basis and uh, making that judgment call about what's in their best interests. And also to confirm that to where the patient's prescriptions are on date, for example, they can be delivered remotely and they can be prescribed remotely and the college produces this guidance, which enables them to do so. So where possible, if it can be provided remotely, that care should be offered in the first instance. Otherwise, it's on a needs and symptoms-led basis. Okay, and, and building on that, is the current PPE sufficient with the new, more contagious variants of coronavirus and, and what's the evidence? Yes, absolutely. I believe the uh, Public Health England had a recent uh, roundtable discussion with a, a consensus with experts about the current level of the PPE and the IPC control in place. Uh, and they found that despite the fact that the new variant uh, does exhibit increased transmissibility, the, the current PPE is sufficient. I'm going to come to Debbie now because there's a, there's a question around practitioners working in unventilated rooms for up to 45 minutes at a time. Uh, are they more vulnerable to the virus than, say, a GP or a dentist whose patient facing time could be 10 minutes, you know, it could be less than, than our clinicians spend in a room? What, what, what would your response be to that? Thanks, Richard. So um, there is no evidence to show that optometrists are at greater risk of um, contracting the virus compared to the GPs and the dentists, um, although due to the nature of these healthcare roles, contact with members of the public does mean that they're higher risk compared to non-healthcare workers. However, optometrists are classed as medium risk as patients are screened for COVID um, and they're not performing the aerosol generating procedures. They've got increased IPC and PPE procedures are in place. That's great, thank you. And I'm gonna to turn to Peter. Should online appointments be permitted? Because you know this particular members said, you know, my employer is, is opening up clinics for patients to group directly into the diary without triage, which results in increased risk to optometrists due to non-essential appointments being grouped in. In addition, practice staff are advised not to call patients to postpone appointments in the future. Um, you know, what, what would your view be on, on, on that kind of anecdote from, from a, a particular member? Thanks, Richard. Um, online appointments, it's not the online booking that's really the issue. It's what you do after it. So booking appointments or requesting an appointment online doesn't pose any real problems as long as the correct procedures after that are followed to make certain that the correct triage is in place. And then it shouldn't pose any additional risk. It would only be if those steps aren't there that additional risk might be present. So it's all about the process. Great. Okay. Thanks, Pete. What's the minimum time for IPC between appointments? Um, you know, what about a minimum time? Should, should that be prescribed from somewhere? Uh, Peter, I'll, I'll, I'll stay with you on that one. I think minimum time for IPC or uh, cleaning down the room and changing PP and all the rest of it, it's difficult and people have got a lot quicker at it than they have. But I think the one thing that we have to say is that you have to have more time built into your diary to allow for it it's unfair not to um, and we have to also recognize the stress that the continual cleaning and changing of PPE adds so it can't just be a physical 20 minutes plus two minutes for cleaning it has to build in some some sort of um, fallow time to allow for for that sort of stress factor and just to, so practitioners aren't completely burnt out by the end of the day. And just logistics, isn't it? It's a great in theory saying how long does it take to take PPA off, but crikey, uh, when you actually take it off, put your next lot on, yada, yada, it, it soon eats into the day, doesn't it? So, um, Debbie, I'm going to come back to you with a question that says, should all practice staff wear PPE? Is it up to the practitioner or is the decision made by the practice based on a risk assessment? Well, the public health guidance is that clinicians treating patients within a two metre radius should be wearing PPE. And anyone else working in the practice or patients accessing care should wear a face covering. And since April, the OFNC recommended that best practice 
is that, um, and they've provided guidance and examples and risk assessments, etc., to do this. Okay, great, thanks. I'm going to go to Harjit now with the next question. Uh, why is nothing being done to stop multiples booking tests online with no triaging? I, I think Peter picked up on the new universal principle here, and I think it was, there was also an example that um, he has to comment on where triaging should be in place and isn't clearly in some cases. Regardless of practice size, like Peter's mentioned, online booking itself, appointment, is not a problem, but triaging must be in place to prioritise patients. Now, this comes down to if you feel that something is not being appropriately done, if you believe triaging processes, which should be in place or not in place, you should really escalate that internally to make sure those procedures are put in place. But ultimately, allow online bookings for an appointment, but that must be, as Peter said, followed up by an effective triage process. And if it's not, then as a professional on the ground, you should really escalate that internally just to make sure the procedures are tightened up. Thank you. I'm going to still kind of jump, jump back into the subject of PPE um, with, with, with a question for, for Paramdeep. The, the, the BMA lobbying for these FFP3 masks, uh, you know, isn't the surgical type mask that the college currently advises us to wear inadequate? And why has the college not been at the forefront of pushing for a higher specification of mask? First of all, it's a very good question, and it's really important for members and the college to challenge and review the evidence of what's effective throughout the pandemic. And it's important to also recognise that the college has kept this under review and will continue to do so. So firstly, it's important to note that the college PPE guidance follows official pan-UK PPE guidance for healthcare. That means that this is the and the only official PPE guidance in the UK for healthcare settings. Differences in PPE exist across healthcare because risks vary for healthcare professions based on patient groups, procedures and other factors. For example, a doctor working in a COVID-19 ward or a dentist performing an AGP, which is an aerosol generating procedure and they are at greater risk of infection, so have a different level of PPE to many of the healthcare workers. And likewise, optometrists have a higher level of PPE than pharmacists. And importantly, this is all consistent with the Pan-UK guidance on PPE. As I mentioned, however, the college is keeping this under a constant review. We welcome member feedback, and we do feed into that discussion with officials that define PPE for all healthcare settings. That's why the college, on behalf of the members and the sector, is in regular contact with public health officials across the UK who are analysing the data and ensuring the PPE advice is robust. And at this stage, public health officials have reassured us that the level of PPE for healthcare professionals is communicated on an ongoing basis. This is in light of the recent evidence and expert consensus review of transmissibility of the new COVID-19 variant and adequacy of current PPE. And IPC procedures have shown that surgical masks, the fluid-resistant type 2 masks, are sufficient where non-AGPs are performed, such as the optometric practice, where they have been advised not to be carried out, such as using an alga brush for foreign bodies or microfoliation for blepharitis. If the official PPE guidance were to change or be advised by public health bodies to update the college guidance, then we will do so. At this stage, however, the health system, medical colleagues and public health experts have advised to all of us to refer to the official PPE guidance. As a college, we support this pan-healthcare approach. And for example, we don't want to be in a situation where we were in the first wave where colleagues at the greatest risk of COVID cannot get the PPE they need. So it's important that we encourage your questions to continue to be asked about IPC measures and PPE. We'll read all of these and feed into the discussions, but at the same time, please continue to follow official guidance, which you can find on the college website. And I guess there's a kind of follow-up to that. Why does wearing PPE and carrying out effective IPC systems, why does that not completely prevent transmission? Partly because in terms of risk, risk can never be completely mitigated. I mean, there's a lot of 
um, uh, misinformation about risk can be either be completely removed or not. It can only be minimised. And I think by wearing the PPE, uh, that's the one of the ways to do that. Certainly to reduce transmission, uh, and that is to minimise the risk. So it can never be completely down to zero, but it does reduce it. Okay. The college mentions that one of the reasons for being able to keep primary care in the amber status is that we have queues. Um, so what difference does it make in different parts of England? So, for example, in Northumberland, where the local CCG has not commissioned a queue system or any other type of MEX service, um, we've got some local variants here, apparently. But what would your advice be to members uh, faced with those kind of local variations? OK, I think it's important to recognise in response to that question that prior to COVID, all healthcare clinicians in the practice, so optometrists, dispensing opticians, contact lens opticians, practice staff, that mean they are, you know, they are trained to determine whether or not a particular eye, eye condition requires an emergency care. Uh, and so prior to COVID, that, that's always been the case. There's always routes and pathways established in order to give the patients the right level of care they need in the, in the, in the top right time frame. So while we're frustrated that queues hasn't been commissioned in every part of England, you know, it was still important to recognise that optometrists and their fellow staff that perform an essential public role through delivery of our services uh, and so that they should, should they continue to complete accurate referrals when they're indicated. So that's whether or not the COVID pandemic was in place. Peter, do you want to build on that? Thanks, Richard. So optometrists and dispensing opticians and contact lens opticians have been delivering essential and emergency care long before any of these uh, services existed. So I think they can still continue to do that. It, it's just that queues is a change to the mechanism. So as much as queues makes it far easier for practices to deliver care, um, it, it doesn't prevent practices that don't have queues from delivering care. It's just how, how they go about actually providing that, the actual mechanism they provide that to patients via. Okay, I'm going to move on now to the next question, which relates to uh, Scotland. We've had a question from a, a Scottish member of the college saying that, you know, that, that their government are quite rightly asking the public to stay at home. So why then are Scottish optometrists being asked to meet their minimum psych test targets in order to sustain and receive their support payments for January? Thank you, Richard. That is a good question, if I can answer that. The Scottish Government guidance to the general population is to stay home. Uh, but the Scottish Government guidance to the health sector and those needing healthcare is different. And for these specific reasons, you can leave home. Uh, and thus the guidance has to be read in that context. There is no conflict than the government advising people to stay home, but to continue to seek healthcare in accordance with COVID-19's guidance. On the specifics about the GOS grant in Scotland, the latest PCA for Optometry Scotland, a notification of the NHS and Scotland issues, explains that provided practices meet 20% of the historical GOS activity, they will receive a GOS grant. The question asks whether this is okay. And to answer that, this is the threshold set by the NHS and there'll be reasons why they've opted for this. And there are only two things that I think I can say on this. And number one is that this is something that this is also a condition of grant support in other parts of the healthcare service across the UK. So it's not unique to optometry. And secondly, policymakers have a complex balancing act to ensure there is sufficient capacity to meet needs without placing pressure on GPs and hospitals while ensuring that opticians can continue to operate. If they demanded a very high threshold, that might drive too much face-to-face -to -face care. And if they had no threshold, more practices might close altogether and result in pressure on other parts of the system. I mean, whatever decision policymakers make here about the grant, they will have considered impacts as part of their own decision-making process. I mean, those with specific questions about the support package in Scotland might also want to contact Optometry Scotland for more information. Uh, and Peter, is there anything else you'd like to add? 
I, I think there's probably a, a concern amongst most governments that as much as most people will do the will do the correct thing, uh, there's there's always potential that some people won't, and they're keen to just have some some step in there to try and encourage those that might be tempted not to to make sure they also do the right thing. I'm going to move on to contact lenses now. So, um, what's the current guidance around contact lens new fittings and assessments? So, this is going to come to apparently because college guidelines were originally that we need to be in green to resume fitting of non-medical contact lenses. What's the college's current advice regarding new contact lens patients? I think it's, uh, as, as in all cases, the optometrists should use their professional judgment to act in the patient's best interest. I mean, there might be legitimate reasons why it is in the patient's best interest to have a contact lens fitting. Again, like I mentioned before, if they're a key worker. But importantly, again, in fittings should only be offered where there is capacity and, and when it's safe to do so. Okay. And a, a very kind of practical follow-up to that really is, you know, how, how do you perform contact lens teach from, in a socially distanced manner? So in order to perform a, a contact lens teach safely, the college has produced some guidance for all healthcare professionals involved in delivering eye care. So optometrists, dispensing opticians, contact lens opticians and practice staff so that they can uh, perform teachers safely. And, and, and that's been available on the website on an FAQ uh, for all to follow. It's really important that whilst delivering that teaching care, all the procedures are still followed. So the infection prevention control measures and wearing of appropriate PPE in all, in all cases. Okay, I'm going to move on now to one of the areas that, that's coming up repeatedly in the question, which is around the whole issue of triage. I'm going to turn to Peter. Uh, Peter, there's, a, there's a, a question here from a member. Says, the Association of Optometrists had a fab triage in March, which is no longer available online, question mark. Any, any guidance regarding your fab triage that was available? As far as I'm aware, Richard, it is still available. Um, if it isn't, I'll have to speak to the web team and make sure they put it back up because I agree it was very helpful for, for a number of people. Okay, thank you. Um, so, Peter, do you think we should be triaging or questioning every patient that rings up to book an appointment? And if their reply is that their test is routine, quote, should we be suggesting they wait until vaccinated if they're in a higher risk category? Um, I think that's exactly right. I think if you've got a patient who will very soon be in a much safer position and they don't have a clinical need to be seen, then I think deferring their care until they're safer is, is sensible by anybody's measure. Just to, to add in on that, so where a patient contacts a practice and they report visual or ocular symptoms, we advise that optometrists they should be alerted and then they should use their clinical judgment to help determine the level of urgency of care required. Uh, all patients, however, they must be screened for COVID-19 status, and this can be done by practice staff. Uh, if a patient contacts practice about routine care and they're asymptomatic, they should be offered to postpone their appointment, particularly if they're a high-risk group contracting the virus. Uh, and this is irrespective of whether they have the vaccine, because it's important to recognise that if they have had a vaccine, that doesn't mean they can't can no longer get it or transmit it. So that's an, an important consideration to make. So patients who have had the vaccine can still actually catch the disease and spread it. Uh, and so that's what's really important. They still uh, undergo a screening of COVID before they uh, enter or being offered face-to-face -face care. Um, I'm going to come to the, to the college now. Apparently there's a question that why did the college change the wording of the red phase uh, and not send an email to say that that had been done? Right, so the, the wording was updated in November 2020 to provide additional clarity and to show it was aligned with each nation's approach to, you know, to local and national lockdowns. And this was communicated to members on the 2nd of December in that e-news feature. All four nations are clear that the health services should remain open wherever possible. 
And based on feedback over the last couple of weeks, we plan to update the AMIC definition to show it's clear and reflective of current practice. There's a really interesting question here from a practice owner, which I'm, I'm going to um, ask Peter to respond to. So, so this is from a, an owner of a small independent practice who says, without having as full an appointment book as I can, how am I supposed to survive? Uh, I've got small independent practice and if patients are now not phoning into book routine appointments, how do I operate? What would your advice be to that particular practitioner? I think it's a difficult situation, isn't it, for many practices that that obviously appointments aren't necessarily coming in it's England for additional support as, as OFNC, of which many of us on this call are members. Um, I think for now, you've got to take advantage of, of the options that are out there. So if you can furlough some staff, you've got to do that. You've got to look if there are any local grants you can apply for and just understand that hopefully this will be relatively short term and things will pick up once once staff members have been vaccinated and patients in some of the categories have been vaccinated hopefully those numbers will improve and we can start taking on some of the care out of the hospital and hopefully practices can then bounce back quite strongly. My practice owner is now phoning patients who missed routine appointments to fill the clinics. I don't think this is within the guidance. So Hardy, what would your response be to a practitioner who's got a practice manager who's phoning people who missed appointments? I think there's, a, again, there's a difference. It's a bit like the online discussions we've had backwards in a way that if you're going to go through your case records and decide who meets the definition of your local priority criteria and who you're going to remind that you are open and they can come and see you, you know, provided it meets your clinical triage criteria, that's one way of doing it. If a blanket recalling of everybody without assessing for risks and benefits is, is not something that any of the guidance says do. And you might see this more so in, in practice where you don't have online bookings. There has to be some mechanism by which they're going to recall their patients. You might have it in practices that you don't have an automatic mail-out system to remind people they're open. Um, so it can be a legitimate way of getting in touch with patients. But then the triage process still has to be the same. Now I'm going to move on to the next question. Where does the government say the public can access routine care if asymptomatic? This contradicts the stay-at-home unless necessary message. Put quite simply... I don't believe the government has said that. Apparently. I think there's a, a clear distinction between I mean, public health messaging and the stay-at-home advice that's been given. For example, it's very different between meeting your mates at the park, you know, meeting people outdoors or in, in, in an enclosed space versus accessing medical appointments. And, and as a result of that difference, each respective UK nation, they've clearly stated that the legal exemptions to that stay-at-home message is then defined by their respective health systems that routine primary care should continue. Um, so, that, so that's a really good question. I think, first of all, the legislation, um, the COVID legislation is very clear, opticians can remain open. And then e each of the four nations, UK countries, have um, health authorities in effect, a leadership that defines which health services are open and closed and what they, what they do. And so, whether it's NHS England, NHS Wales, NHS Scotland, or the health service in Northern Ireland, there's explicit guidance out there with each of those health leaders informing opticians to remain open as part of primary care, um, to follow COVID guidance, and that they can see routine patients where capacity permits. So it is explicitly stated in each of the countries. Okay, I'm going to move on to contact lenses now. Is it possible to get clarification on contact lens supply? When a sight test expired in the amber phase, we've got a patient with no symptoms and they require a sight test to validate their contact lens specification. You know, what, what are your thoughts on that? 
supply of all in all cases you must take into account the patient's needs and the clinical judgment to exercise you know whether or not a new refraction is necessary in, in all cases but due to the pandemic the GSD have issued easement statements that explain that contaminants can be supplied with an expired specification is provided you're acting in their best interests there's clinical need and you're balancing the risk of contracting the virus by attending against the risk of supplying with an expired prescription so you're using your clinical judgment then to make a call about what's in the best interests for that patient. And Mark, Marcus at the GOC, do you, do you want to just remind listeners where they can find the GOC easement statement? Because, you know, I, I have to say, I think there's some really good stuff on that part of the GOC website, which uh, gives us some guidance in this, in this kind of rapidly changing environment that we're working in. Yep, so all of our statements on COVID are available on our main public website uh, and there is a, a, a link on the, the main page which includes the, the statement that um, Poundeep referred to in relation to supply of contact lens and spectacles on outfit prescriptions. So Peter, do you want to build on that? I think it's just important to understand the difference between an in-date site test and a, and a valid specification. So you need a, a valid site test, a current site test within the last two years to issue a specification. Once you have a specification, the specification is valid for the period of that specification. So if the site test has lapsed and it's, it, there's no need to repeat it if, they, if the specification is current, and then they can, they can buy lenses against that. Um, and then with regard to what's appropriate at this point, it will just depend on where we are in the in the pandemic to how much use you make of the easements that are in existence. Okay, thanks for it. I'm going to come back to Paramdia with another contact lens question. So whilst I understand that eye exams can pick up asymptomatic patients with pathology, shouldn't we be actively encouraging our routine asymptomatic contact lens aftercares to convert to a telephone triage system, first of all, so that most people can, can access the service without having to come into the practice? The response to that is yes, this is entirely consistent with the amber phase guidance and the stay at home message. But in all cases of patient contact about their eye care appointment, the optometrist should use their professional judgment and act in the patient's best interests. Regarding aftercares, for example, where they're asymptomatic or with no concerns about their contact lenses, this can be achieved through remote consultation, but where any ocular symptoms are cause for concern, they may be offered face-to-face -face where an examination is necessary to address them and provide a treatment if required or advice. Regarding fittings, there may be legitimate reasons why it's in the patient's best interest for this to happen, such as if they're a key worker. And contact lenses are a form of correction like spectacles. They are a registered medical device and would fall within the legal current exemption for medical appointments. And importantly, fitting should only be offered where there is capacity, having prioritised urgent and essential patients and when it's safe to do so. Should we be screening our patients using lateral flow tests before attending the practice? as they would give us results about whether a person has COVID or not very, very quickly? So the answer in short is no. And that's due to the fact that the test itself has a low sensitivity. So it's not advised as a screening method as it may give quite a, a, a high risk of giving many false negatives and give a false sense of security about their COVID status. And at, at present, as far as I'm aware, they're only available in practices with NHS primary care contracts in England, but that's been rolled across the UK. Despite the low sensitivity, Public Health England have reasoned that even if a third of asymptomatic staff are COVID-19 positive, as detected by uh, lateral flow tests, that's significant enough to help drive down the transmission. But equally, a negative test shouldn't mean that you should be more complacent. It's only a supplementary test to help give uh, an, an assurance about the COVID status. So it's really important that you continue to follow the IPC procedures in place and to wear PPE. 
Is it more of a risk to see a routine patient for, for an asymptomatic eye condition than catching COVID and getting seriously unwell? So I believe our, our guidance clearly states that when making a decision about whether or not a patient requires face-to-face -face care, their judgment should be based, based upon that very statement they made. You should balance the risk of them contracting COVID, particularly if they're in that vulnerable group, the high-risk group, uh, against the outcome of missing uh, pathology uh, by not attending a site test. And that's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, I think, again, it depends upon the patient's history, uh, their clinical needs, in order to make that decision. But again, you should always make sure at the outset that they are screened for COVID before they're coming in and offer that patient a remote consultation in the first instance, potentially, depending on their symptoms, to work out whether or not a face-to-face -face is actually necessary. So in terms of if patients are at more at risk of attending for a routine appointment versus uh, catching COVID if and, and getting seriously unwell, I mean, while there's no current specific risk calculation or evidence for this answer, Royal College of Ophthalmologists, uh, and in conjunction with a study with the University College London, they've reported that suspension of routine primary care had a significant impact on people's eye health, with over 10,000 people missing out on eye care to maintain their sight during the lockdown and secondary care. And they found there's a reduction of about 25% of patients with known by AMD attending their appointments. And that just underlines a crucial public health function of eye care. And the decision to offer patients face-to-face -face care is one where an optometrist must use their professional judgment to balance the risk of adverse visual ocular outcomes against contracting the COVID-19 on a case-by-case -case basis. So question for, for Peter, um, in England, uh, what are the regulatory bodies doing about 25-minute sight tests? So this is where the 25 minutes has to include both changing PPE, cleaning the room, and looking at OCT supplementary test results. Peter, what, what are your thoughts on this? I think it's incredibly important that practitioners have enough time to safely deliver the care that they need to deliver and also to make sure that patients are safe and they are safe themselves. So we've advocated for longer times than that. We've advocated to definitely have longer appointment times than pre-pandemic because we think everything takes that little bit longer to clean things down as we know. And also we've got to avoid uh, practitioners being burnt out by the pressure of it all, uh, sort of working at a, at a hectic pace all day. Um, we can't mandate a site test time, I'm afraid. I wish we could, um, but that isn't in our gift. Uh, this, this again, this is a Four Nations issue uh, from, from a colleague in Wales. Uh, the question is, is there a difference in advice in Wales and England and whether to see an asymptomatic shielded patient if there's capacity for routine or not? Do we postpone a shielder in Wales or not? Okay, so Welsh Government and Optometry Wales have advised that high-risk patients should contact their medical teams, NHS 111, rather than optometrists in the first instance to help them make an informed decision to see eye care by balancing the risk of contracting COVID-19 by leaving the house against the risk of visual or ocular concerns. Where they do contact the practice to see eye care, optometrists should use their professional judgment to determine the level of care and urgency they require. And if they're asymptomatic, with no known existing or risk of eye conditions, such patients should be offered the choice to postpone until restrictions have eased. Um, the college have said that the traffic light phase for definitions would change in December to, to kind of match national health policies. Where could somebody find a bit more information about that? So to help our members understand how each nation's tiers and levels relate to the college's red and amber phase, we've reviewed and updated the definitions. In order to enter the college's red phase, a nation's government or health system should specify restriction of primary care services. Eye care and routine site tests are an essential public health function, which should continue to be available for the public to access wherever possible 
providing it is safe to deliver. The UK government alert levels relate to the degree of circulation of the virus, while the tier levels in each UK nation relate to the actions taken to mitigate transmission. Thus, like the tier levels in each UK nation, the college's traffic light system relates to the actions to be taken by optometric practices to reduce transmission while maintaining access to and delivering eye care safely and effectively. And this has all been summarised in our COVID guidance online, uh, together with detailed advice about how to adapt your practice during the red and amber phases. What should I do about a patient who has symptoms of sight loss, such as floaters and flashes, but who may also have symptoms indicative of COVID-19? Yes, so where they have symptoms suggestive of their COVID status and they have a positive health screening, in the first instance, that patient should not be attending practice at all. I mean, firstly, that's to reduce the transmission, of course, but also to ensure the safety of, of other staff and patients. Now, if they report symptoms of an urgent eye condition that requires care, it depends on the UK nation that you are in. For example, in Scotland, it's mandated that uh, you must be triaged or assessed by optometrists prior to referral to a hospitalised centre. But of course, that can only be delivered remotely. But in other areas of the UK, in the first instance, you should contact your local hospital department or ask for advice uh, about how to uh, manage such a patient. But uh, okay. in any case, they should not be attending the practice. Um, I'm going to go on to a question now uh, about tonometry. Am I safe to use a mask with a pulsar tonometer, or is this an aerosol generating procedure? Yes, so I mean, at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, there's quite a lot of uncertainty about the status of NCT uh, and also for phacomalsification in cataract surgery uh, as to its status as well or not. So it's an aerosol generating procedure. Uh, and the guidance from Public Health England wasn't really specific about what the criteria was to meet that, uh, that standard. So initially, it was advised not to use them. Some evidence showed that there was a very low prevalence of the viral load within active conjunctivitis patients and also those with COVID on the ocular surface and in the tear film. And as a result, the NCT isn't likely to pose a significant risk without uh, active COVID or conjunctivitis and therefore can continue to be used now. So it's important though that the risk assessment has been conducted in the first instance and that should always follow the IPC procedures, particularly for that tonometer. But it's important that we recommend that the head is wiped from the appropriate disinfectant and to perform free puff between each patient to clear the tip. And in respect to wearing a mask, we recommend all practice staff to wear a type two fluid resistant surgical mask when they're providing care. Okay, I'd like to turn now um, to an issue that's become quite uh, high profile in, in some of the questions we're getting around whistleblowing. Um, I'm, I'm gonna ask Marcus from a GOC perspective. I've got a comment here from somebody who says, if I whistleblow, I'll be sacked. What protections do I have? Uh, well, you do have some protections. So uh, obviously we are concerned with the ability for our registrants to be able to speak up. And the easiest way to resolve issues and concerns in practice is to be able to do that at the local level uh, and resolve those um, in conjunction with your employer. But sometimes um, you may need to escalate those to other organisations. Um, if you're unable to uh, resolve these issues um, uh, at that level, then there is the ability to raise a protected public interest disclosure, which some people refer to as whistleblowing, and that is protected by um, the Public Interest Disclosures Act 1998 in England, Wales and Scotland, and the Public Interest Disclosure Order in Northern Ireland. Um, to raise those sorts of um, issues, you have to um, uh, be a worker, 
and to raise with a prescribed body. Um, and it has to cover certain types of concerns that you have. So things like criminal offenses, failure to comply with a legal obligation, um, and probably most importantly for COVID, um, uh, if there's concerns about health and safety, uh, which may endanger an individual. Those complaints can be made anonymously, but it's always best to identify yourself because uh, if you don't identify yourself, you may not then be subject to those legal protections um, because it needs to be on a specific person. Um, but also the GOC's, the General Optical Council's business standards um, puts expectations on employers um, that if employees raise concerns, then they aren't um, impacted in terms of, the, of their own sort of working lives. Um, it requires employers to sort of make it clear what those escalation channels are for, for their concerns. The GOC will certainly take, um, has taken action and will take action if business registrants have acted inappropriately in relation to staff who wish to um, undertake whistleblowing. So Marcus, as a, a follow-up to that regarding whistleblowing, why should the onus be on the, the workforce, the, the, the staff, to raise issues when they think that something isn't correct regarding the triage process or any other particular aspect of working in practice? Why should the onus sit with the staff and the colleagues? Very good question. I think the simple answer to that is in the interests of um, patients, which is a duty of all healthcare professionals. And I think the quickest, simplest and most effective resolution to these sorts of concerns is at a local level. Uh, and re our registrants are best placed to identify those issues and resolve them quickly in conjunction with employers and, and, and others, um, where a registrant may feel that, that they've exhausted all their routes with their employer, um, they may want to approach other bodies and the professional associations in the sector are a perfect conduit for um, advice and guidance in this area. Um, the government has also appointed um, the Health and Safety Executive to enforce uh, some of its COVID guidance. So if there are specific concerns that haven't been in addressed in relation to infection control, um, then that is another route uh, to seek advice. Um, I think sort of the, the nuclear option is the GOC. Um, we have the ability to investigate these types of complaints, but that process is uh, a slightly longer process. It will require us to do an investigation um, and then take it to a fitness to practice committee. So it's not a, a quick resolution. And some of the things that, that have been raised around things like infection control need to be resolved quite quickly uh, and the best place to do that is locally but obviously we, we are a, um, a body that is concerned with patient safety and those concerns if they are um, sufficient can be raised with us. I think the sort of the support we can also give is in relation to how um, registrants can go about that speaking up process and we're currently consulting on some draft guidance um, you can access through our um, GAC website on how to speak up and the sort of ways that you might want to do that and use your professional judgment as to the best route to do so. That's great. Debbie, one final question. Are DOs and optical assistants also classified as frontline staff? Thanks, Richard. Um, yes, um, they are, as it is the multidisciplinary teams that enables a practice to operate. And this is why all optical practice staff are included in the priority groups throughout the UK um, to receive the COVID vaccine. Well, some have done and or will be receiving very soon. Brilliant, thank you. And with that, I'm going to draw things to a close. I just want to thank the college and the college team for pulling this event together. A huge thank you 
to the to the panel members who have given their their time and expertise to try and clarify some of these really important points. Thanks very much to our panel and all those who submitted questions for them. Stay tuned to the college's podcast feed for more webinar extras, optometry and practice shows and our regular monthly podcast. But for now, thanks for listening. Thank you.